days later. Two days after Super Bowl 54, and we've still got unanswered questions. We've still got two major elephants in the room left unaddressed. Well, guess what? We're going to address both of them. Here in the next 15 minutes, here in the Sports Pen with Tanner Hoops on ESPN-UP. Glad that you're along this Tuesday afternoon. we got a lot to get into today. It's going to be a fun show. Of course, the breaking news that rocked us just about an hour ago. Mark D'Antonio is stepping down as Michigan State head football coach amidst some recruiting violation scandals. After 13 seasons, the D'Antonio era is over in East Lansing. We will get into that. I've got a guest who's going to join me in studio. Northern Michigan University made a huge technological advancement this weekend. I tell you what, this is going to put Northern into the upper tier of sports programs around the country. Eric Smith, the Director of Broadcast and Audiovisual Services, will be in the studio with me about 15 minutes. He'll tell us what happened at Northern this weekend and where it could take the university in the future. Don't miss that interview. Plus, I've got Northern Michigan coaches audio from today's press conference. All that and more coming up over the course of the next hour. Glad to have you along. Let's start, though, by answering some unanswered questions. We are two days removed from Super Bowl 54. Tonight, it'll be officially 48 hours. By the way, tonight we have Westwood Patriot Basketball on ESPN-UP. Don't forget that. But we still have questions about Super Bowl 54. And the two biggest ones, if you listen to Sports Talk Radio yesterday, the two biggest questions that people are still debating are, A, did Pat Mahomes rightfully win Super Bowl MVP, or should it have been somebody else? And B, Who is more to blame for the 49ers' loss on Sunday, Kyle Shanahan or Jimmy Garoppolo? I'm going to give you some clarity, not necessarily answers, but enough clarity, enough perspective that I believe you'll be able to come to your own conclusions about both of those questions. Let's start with the first one. Should Pat Mahomes have won Super Bowl MVP? Now, this is one where I could go either way. And I think that the right answer is specific to the individual beholder. It's specific to whoever is interpreting the question a certain way. Because how do you interpret most valuable player? That's something sports fans have dealt with for a long time. Did Pat Mahomes rightfully win Super Bowl MVP on Sunday night? Well, let's break it down. At one point, Pat Mahomes was at... I don't know, 16 to 25, 140 something yards, no TDs, and a really bad interception. That was like midway through the third quarter. Jimmy Garoppolo, on the other hand, at one point, he was 18 to 21 with a touchdown pass. Pat Mahomes was getting outplayed by Jimmy Garoppolo, maybe even into the fourth quarter. I remember texting somebody Jimmy Garoppolo really is outplaying Pat Mahomes, isn't he? That was when the Niners were up 20 to 10. Now, a lot of people think that because of that, because Pat Mahomes came alive in the fourth quarter, but he played maybe his worst game of his career for the first three quarters of that game, that you should have given Super Bowl MVP to a more consistent player. A guy like Damian Williams, who had an outstanding game running the football for Kansas City. 104 yards and a touchdown on 17 carries, albeit a good chunk of that, plus the touchdown came after Kansas City already had taken the lead late in the game. It depends how you interpret this. How do you interpret the award? Most valuable player. Do you interpret that as the best player in the field? 
Because if that was the case, the best, most consistent player on the field on Sunday, at least on the Chiefs' side, was Damian Williams. If you're talking about the guy who gave you the best shot to win, without whose performance the Chiefs would not have won that game, that's Patrick Mahomes. I mean, let's think about it. Kansas City was down 20-10 to 10 when Pat Mahomes was playing very non-Pat Mahomes-like. You never felt like Kansas City, when they were down 20-10, to 10, was going to get back into that game because Damian Williams was running the ball so well. That's not to take away from Williams' performance. And he was phenomenal on Sunday, make no mistake, especially with LaShawn McCoy out with him being hurt. Damian Williams was phenomenal, but you never felt like his big game was going to make or break the Chiefs' comeback attempt. You knew that comeback attempt hinged on Patrick Mahomes. It absolutely hinged on Patrick Mahomes coming alive, and he did. And once he started playing well, not because Damian Williams was playing well, once Pat Mahomes started playing well, the Chiefs made their comeback. So in that sense, if you really, strictly, are being literal with the term most valuable player, then yeah, Pat Mahomes rightfully won the award. Now, if the the title, the trophy, the award was called Most Outstanding Player, I don't think that's Pat Mahomes. I think that's absolutely Damian Williams. And if the 49ers would have won, probably Nick Bosa, maybe Kyle Juszczyk, maybe Debo Samuel. But if you're being literal in the sense that this guy was the most valuable to our chances of winning the Super Bowl, then they did get it right. Because Pat Mahomes playing well meant more to the Chiefs and their victory than Damian Williams playing well did. Now, I get it. Damian Williams had a monster performance. I don't mean to take anything away from him in that sense. But you never felt like the Chiefs got this. They're going to come back because of how well Damian Williams is running the ball. You knew the comeback was going to start if Pat Mahomes was going to start balling out. And once he did, here came the Chiefs. For me, it's akin to the whole... Eli Manning, does he belong in the Hall of Fame debate or not? Now, I'm not going to go as far to say that Eli had as many bad years statistically as he did good years. I will not go that far. But that's not far off. Eli was in the league for about 16 years. Statistically, he probably had 9 or 10 good years compared to 6 or 7 bad ones. That's not the standard that we hold what we think of as a typical Hall of Famer to be. Yet, Eli Manning's in the conversation because he stepped up in the biggest moments. Because he won two Super Bowls. And because, even though he didn't play necessarily great for the majority of those Super Bowls, he delivered when it mattered most. In both Super Bowl Forty Two and Super Bowl Forty Six, I don't think Eli Manning was the Giants' best player in either of those games. Yet he won Super Bowl MVP in both. Because if he doesn't make the throw to Mario Manningham, drop it right in his breadbasket, the Giants don't win. Or if he doesn't escape the pocket, get spun around, maintain his composure, and deliver a strike to David Tyree downfield, the Giants don't win that game. So in the term, the literal term, most valuable player, yeah, the Giants' best offensive player could have been... Plaxico Burris, it could have been Mario Manningham, it could have been uh, Brandon Jacobs, Ahmad Bradshaw, it could have been anybody else but Eli Manning in that situation, 
Yet without Eli making those plays, those couple of plays, the Giants don't win that Super Bowl. In that sense, the literal sense, yes, he is the most valuable player in that Super Bowl. Same with Patrick Mahomes. Just like the Giants in Super Bowls 42 and 46, you never felt like, oh boy, the way Ahmad Bradshaw is running the football, the Giants have this thing locked up. Or the way that Michael Strahan is getting to Tom Brady, if he keeps doing that all night, there's no shot. We don't even need Eli to play well. And that's just not true. You felt like the Giants were going to come back because Eli Manning was in the prime of his career when he was the fourth quarter comeback king. And he did it both those times in both those Super Bowls in Super Bowl 42 and 46. And that's why he was named most valuable player. So in the literal sense of the definition, most valuable player, Eli Manning rightfully won those two Super Bowl MVPs and Pat Mahomes rightfully won Super Bowl MVP on Sunday. If the award was something else, most outstanding player, I don't think you'd give it to either Eli or to Pat Mahomes. But the fact that they made the most impactful plays to help their team win the biggest game the biggest game, arguably, in the world. That's why they're remembered with the legacies they are. And that's why they're considered most valuable to their team. Let's switch it up here before Eric comes in studio and we talk about what's been going on at Northern Michigan. Let's talk about this debate that was had throughout ESPN radio talk shows yesterday. Who is more at fault for the 49ers loss on Sunday? Is it head coach Kyle Shanahan Or is it quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo? Now, I heard this argument between Will Kane and both Tim Hasselbeck and Bobby Carpenter. They were on separately with Will yesterday, but they both sided against Will. Now, here's the thing. Will came out and said that Kyle Shanahan is more at fault for the 49ers loss on Sunday. This is a coach that three years ago was the offensive coordinator. He was the play caller for Dan Quinn with the Atlanta Falcons when they were in the Super Bowl against Tom Brady and the Patriots. They led 28-3 at one point in the third quarter. They led 28-9 going into the fourth quarter and lost that game in overtime because Kyle Shanahan wanted to pass the ball when he should have been running and keeping the clock moving. He should have been calling running plays and keeping the clock moving. Yet he decided to air the ball out, left the door open for New England, and you don't do that against the greatest coach of all time. Now fast forward three years later, he's the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, and he's got a team no one thought would be even postseason bound into the Super Bowl, conference champions, and they are minutes away, seven minutes away from taking down Pat Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. This is a team that has erased multiple deficits in the playoffs. Down 24 nothing against Houston. Come back to win. They put up 51 points in three quarters against the Texans. They were down by 10 twice against Tennessee. And they come back and win that one by multiple scores. So with seven minutes to play and a 10-point lead the Super Bowl, Kyle Shanahan's out here calling pass plays. In fact, 11 Of the last 15 offensive plays for San Francisco were passing plays. And the majority of those fell incomplete. They fell incomplete. Jimmy Garoppolo was 3 of 11 in the final 7 minutes of that game. 11 pass plays 
in 15 snaps when you have a 10-point lead against a high-flying offense that has shown they can get back into a game right quick. Now, to me, that says Kyle Shanahan is to blame. He didn't learn from his mistake with the Falcons in Super Bowl 51. And now he puts the ball in the hands of a much younger, much more inexperienced, and frankly, less talented quarterback than he had in Atlanta. Now, the argument made by Tim Hasselbeck and Bobby Carpenter with Will Kane yesterday was Kyle Shanahan and the plays that he called yesterday, they got guys open. They would have worked if Jimmy would connect. This is on Jimmy Garoppolo for not making the plays. Are you really going to blame a coach who schemes to get players open? It would have worked. The play calls would have worked. He had guys open. Shanahan called something that got guys open. And Garoppolo just couldn't hit him. Are we really going to blame the coach for that? My answer on this is yes. Because let's put it in basketball terms. If a coach is down by three with five seconds on the clock, he's drawn up a three-point play, and he is able to get somebody open, but the guy who he gets open is shooting 15% from behind the arc. Whose fault is that? I mean, whose fault is that? Is that the guy that you're putting in that position who's not skilled enough to make the throw or make the shot? Or is that the coach who schemes that up? If you're going to scheme and you're going to call a brilliant play call, I'm not saying the play call wasn't able to do its job for Shanahan. The throw was there if Jimmy makes it. But you got to know who you're working with here. And I think everybody and their mother could have told you that you don't put the ball in Jimmy Garoppolo's hands in that situation. Everybody and their mother could have told you that you run some clock. You run the football. You don't leave the door open for Pat Mahomes in Kansas City. Not when Patty Mahomes is starting to heat up. So in that sense, Kyle Shanahan, to me, does deserve the blame. Because you got to know who you're working with. you got to know what your pieces are, what your talent is. That just wasn't a position to put Jimmy Garoppolo in. Now, and I get the argument from Hasselback and Carpenter is that you cannot scheme 10 on 11. You cannot take your quarterback simply out of the equation. When you run the football as well as you are with San Francisco, that's got to be your strength. I don't believe handing the ball off to Mostert or to Coleman or to Breida or even Debo Samuel would have been taking Jimmy Garoppolo out of the equation. I don't believe that. you got to play to your strengths. And the Niners all season long have been vulnerable at the quarterback position offensively. And yet that's where Shanahan put his trust, leading by 10 with seven minutes left in the Super Bowl. Kyle Shanahan is seeing his reputation go from this whiz kid offensive genius, which he still maintains, he still maintains that reputation, But now you're adding a guy who cannot manage a clock, who cannot close out a game, cannot close out the big one. You're adding that to his reputation. So to me, Kyle Shanahan absolutely deserves more blame for the 49ers' loss than Jimmy Garoppolo does. 
With that, let's take our first time out. Eric Smith, Northern Michigan Broadcast Director and Audiovisual Settings Coordinator, is going to join me. He'll talk about a brand new innovation getting going at Northern. Debuted this weekend. Find out how it went next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along. Joined in studio by Eric Smith the Director of Broadcast and Audiovisual at Northern Michigan. He's here to talk about an exciting new project that debuted this weekend at the Barry Events Center. Eric, I'll let you speak to the majority of what's going on, but there's new camera equipment on side of the Barry Events Center. Tell me about what went into this project. Well, for a number of years, NMU uh, has been producing its sports games. Football, uh, volleyball, basketball, you know, uh, both men's and women's, and hockey. And we've uh, been working to raise the standard because the university as a whole wanted to improve the experience not only for the fans who attend the game but also for the audiences that watch whether it's streaming or on broadcast TV. And so we have aspired to for several years to reach the ESPN3 standard. That's a production standard that ESPN defines. It uh, specifies a certain type of camera, number of cameras, audio systems, switching, graphics, the, the things that we all recognize as being professional sports broadcasts, we're now at that standard. And so for our students at NMU who go through the sports broadcasting program, they're being trained to a standard that allows them to be successful when they go out and graduate. So this isn't something that's new or just popped up recently. This has been in the works for years? It has. We've uh, been growing it. Uh, It's been one of those organic programs. We first wanted to gauge the interest level. Are there even students who want to do this? And the answer to that was a resounding yes. Once we've determined the interest, then we needed to set about making sure that we had the right facilities to accomplish the goal. And uh, so by saving a little bit and making sure that, you know, we were purchasing the right equipment as we went along, we've now been able to achieve that standard. Tell me about some of the pieces of equipment that you've purchased. Well, probably the most visible are the cameras. Uh, When you look at cameras, we're all accustomed to the ones that news reporters carry on their shoulder. The cameras that we're talking about are the big ones. These are the ones with the large box lenses that are on the front. And we literally went from our old system, which had a 12 power zoom, to this new camera system that has a 72 power zoom. And what that means is we can go from an extreme wide shot of the rink right up to a close up of the players or even the fans that are there uh, experiencing the game. So it gives the viewers at home that upfront, front row seat look at what's actually going on on the rink. So Eric, where are these cameras positioned throughout the arena? Are you going to get multiple angles with this? We are. We've got two main cameras that are center ice, uh, so those are looking down on the ice. We have a third camera that's uh, down at one of the goals. We have what's called a pan tilt zoom PTZ camera that's across the ice that shoots back at the northern bench but it also can be operated to show other parts of the arena and then we have a wireless camera that is roaming around the arena that's getting reaction shots from fans in the crowd it's also being able to pick up some of the game footage and we have cameras that are positioned directly over the goal so when we're doing instant replays we can show that play from a number of angles and it really lets people see exactly what happened you might not catch it the first time but when you go through the second or third or fourth replay ah now i'm beginning to see exactly what's going on eric i'm curious about this goal 
goalie camera. Can the on-ice officials use your feed, your video from this camera, and use it to determine any kind of replay, any kind of scoring challenge, what have you, or is it strictly for your use? Good point. Those cameras are there primarily uh, for the officials so that they can review plays as well. But as we've discovered, the broadcast feed that we have with the instant replay, we're now sending that feed to the officials. They have the advantage of their own own system, but they also can use our broadcast feed with all of the cameras and the replays to give them a more comprehensive look at what's going on in a given play. It just improves the officiating and it makes for a better experience. Well, I know you got to debut it this weekend when Ferris State came to town for hockey. How'd it go? Excellent. We were thrilled with the results. The image quality is superb. Uh, The colors are spectacular. We have uh, an engineering position now for the first time that allows us to train students on how to shade cameras so that the brightness and contrast and the colorimetry are all correct. Uh, We have, of course, the instant replay. Uh, We have graphics so that we can put in the time and the score. We can also put in penalties and other things so that people get uh, a little bit more of the statistics of what's going on during the game. The audio mixing, we now have equalization capabilities so we can enhance the sound. And of course, that pan tilt zoom operator is sitting there with a joystick control, just like you would on a video game. And in fact, that's what it reminds me of is someone sitting at a desk with a video game, but they're doing serious work capturing the images on the ice. Eric, how many people does it take to staff a crew like this? And how many of those are students? How many are full-time professionals? It's a total of 10 people. We have eight students that are rotating through. Uh, some of them are with us every game. We get some uh, you know, for part of the semester. The goal is to be able to bring freshmen in and train them so that they become experienced, but they get good hands-on experience. And one of the things that's critical in this business is to be able to be proficient at doing what you do. So students who go through the program and start as a freshman get literally four years of experience working in these environments they might not stay on camera the whole time they might um, move from camera to camera shading to instant replay to audio mixing and even directing and technical directing so they get a wide range of experiences when they get ready to graduate they fill out their resume of course they put on the type of equipment they've been working with the credentials that they've acquired and now they send that out to people who are looking for folks who can do sports work and there's no shortage of work as you know, we all have an appetite for sport content, right? And these are the students that go out and are very successful getting those jobs. Talk with Eric Smith, Director of Broadcast and Audiovisual at Northern Michigan. Eric, is this going to be exclusive to hockey, being the only Division One sport on campus, or will this be used for all sports? We're doing it with most sports now. We stream, actually, all of the major sports at NMU. The, uh, this equipment right now is, was commissioned for the hockey broadcast, but it's portable so that we can move it over and do football. Uh, you know, we, can, we can do, actually, with this equipment, we'll also do men's and women's basketball. So this is going to enhance the experience for all of the sports because those athletes are working hard, and they deserve not only uh, the notoriety that comes with that hard work, But it also gives family, friends, and others interested in NMU sports a glimpse at the fine work that they're doing. 
Have you gotten pretty good feedback after the first weekend? Well, from the two games, it was all positive. Uh, we still have some minor things that we're working out, but that's normal in a system like this. If you can imagine the complexity of all the wires and cables and so on, but all the coordination that goes with it. We've held some training sessions before the games with the students so that they could get accustomed to the new cameras and how they worked. And uh, it's all about giving them hands-on experience. So let's say ESPN called and they said, we want to run your feed on ESPN3 or ESPN+. Plus. Could they do that? Absolutely. Assuming that the league allowed it and all of the permissions were in place, all it is is a cable plug and they're online with it. And this isn't specific to just the ESPN network. Really, if you wanted, you could send this feed anywhere. Well, there there was a time in broadcast history where you had to have literally a million-dollar truck roll in, and it took a day's worth of setup to get a broadcast experience put together. All of the digital technologies that we've been witnessing here over time have literally shrunk the systems to a point and reduced the cost where organizations like NMU can reasonably afford this level of quality. And that's what we've done. We've provided that type of equipment. We're building a program that puts the operators behind it that know how to use it. And those two things come Combined and deliver a product that matches a broadcast or a broadcast program. So right now, if someone wanted to follow from home, see this stream, would they go to Flow Hockey, the school's homepage, what have you? Yeah, uh, you can just go to the NMU Sports page, and it'll direct you right to the stream. You can log in and watch those games. Uh, they even have them archived, so if you missed one, you can go back and watch it. Um, and of course, you know we partner with other media in town uh, to deliver the broadcast, so it, it's a win for everybody. Eric, tell me about some of the positions needed to man this kind of a staff. Sure. Well, certainly camera work is one of them, and that's a that's a major piece. And it's a little bit harder than it looks. You, know, you just assume you stand by a camera and um, you know focus it and compose it, and you're done. But there's an art to being able to move that camera in time with the players on the ice those players that are skating are moving fast and being able to follow that and provide the kind of shots that the director needs in order to show what's happening on the ice it's no small task so that there's a little bit of a learning curve in doing that but that's part of the program that's what we train students to do and then of course I mentioned the engineering uh, being able to understand electronically what's going on behind the camera. Students are getting that experience now and they begin to understand what gamma is, for example, in a picture and what happens when you raise the contrast but lower the brightness. What's the impact on the image? The instant replay, we're recording multiple cameras and part of the skill of an instant replay operator is being able to look at all of those images that are being recorded and then put together a very short highlight clip so when the director calls for that last goal or a penalty shot, they can play it back from a number of angles so they've got that cued and ready to go. Uh, the graphics, uh, being able to make sure that all the score information is importing correctly, that uh, the graphics are called for when they're needed and that they're available for the director to switch in. We even have a bug that helps uh, the director signal when a replay is coming. If you watch, for example, a, on a Fox game, they call it the Fox Box, where the, that Fox logo comes spinning out and it transitions to the replay. Our 
ours is a wildcat head and we can do the same thing with the sound that goes along with it so those are all of the positions and then of course you know we have the audio work the announcing mixing making sure that the sound levels are all balanced correctly there's a lot that goes into it but by the time you're a senior and you've gone through the program you're very good at it and you're ready to go out in the world are you able to do all this on site at the Barry in the press box or are you sending the feedback somewhere um, the, we send the feed back to our uh, to the WNMU TV station for distribution we also stream it we have uh, computers that are at the Barry that take a, another feed and stream directly to the flow hockey sites but uh, literally we have the capability with fiber optic to send it wherever we need it to go Eric Smith is with us he is the audio visual coordinator broadcast director at Northern Michigan University Eric this is great stuff I can't wait to see it in action myself thanks again for stopping in well thanks for having us and we're just excited to be able to offer this for our students let's take a time out continue more with Northern Athletics in a moment on ESPN UP check out the UP's live and local sports talk show the sports pen weekday afternoons at four on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app welcome back Tanner Hoops with you glad you're along this Tuesday afternoon I've got some Northern Michigan audio for you plus the breaking news that's been rocking the state of Michigan and the college football world from today but first your sports center update the New York Knicks have fired president of basketball operations Steve Mills and they're planning to target Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri for the spot he however is under contract with the Raptors until 2021 the Jacksonville Jaguars are planning to play back-to-back home games in London this season It'll mark the first time in NFL history that a team will play multiple games outside of the United States in the same season. And finally, lobsters communicate by urinating on each other. Lobsters' bladders are located on the side of their head. So when they have something to say to a neighboring lobster, they will simply lean over and urinate on them to communicate, convey, whatever it is they're trying to do. I'm just going to stick to the microphone because I don't think it'd go over well. I'd come over to your place and try to communicate like a lobster i'm not going to do that so we're going to stick to the microphone if that's all right with you that is your sports center update tanner hoops with you glad you're along thanks for having me inside your home your car wherever it may be i'm glad i'm with you before we get into our northern michigan audio hockey and basketball the breaking news of the day mark d'antonio is resigning after 13 seasons as the michigan state head football coach those 13 seasons included three big 10 championships and a college football playoff appearance. Now, this comes one day after legal uh, charges, I guess, for lack of a better word, were filed in Grand Rapids by a former Michigan State staffer named Jerry Blackwell that accuses D'Antonio of recruiting violations. D'Antonio promptly denied the allegations and then decided to resign earlier today. Now, this would be a perfect opportunity for me to play maybe my favorite press conference of all time in all of human history, the next question presser after the Eastern Michigan game back when Le'Veon Bell ran for a career-high 253 yards. Unfortunately, that was on the Big Ten Network. I don't have access to that audio. I invite you to play it for yourself. I've already shared it on my social medias, and I'm just like, we're not going to get any more of these from Mark. Either or, I am going to take the time to speculate because I don't have evidence or anything to back this up. So I'm going to do what sports media journalists are supposed to do and recklessly speculate, recklessly spread a rumor and use my platform to plant something into your head. I got two names for you who could be the successor to Mark D'Antonio in East Lansing. 
The first being Pat Narduzzi who's currently the head coach of the Pitt Panthers. Now, you remember Narduzzi, he was the defensive coordinator under D'Antonio until 2014 when he left for the Pitt job. He's gone to Pitt, and he's gone to four bowl games, albeit the overall record is just 36-29. and 29. Narduzzi has got to be a guy that you think could very well be in the mix. Here's another guy, though, that may not have as strong Michigan ties, or at least Michigan State ties, but what about Luke Fickle? What about Luke Fickle, the current head coach of the Cincinnati Bearcats? He got a shot in the Big Ten back in 2011. He was coaching Ohio State, a down year for them in which they went 6-6. Six and six. He was an assistant with the Buckeyes for a while and was very successful there. And now he's doing well at the mid-major level. He's doing very well with Cincinnati. Wonder if he gets the shot at Michigan State. That one I don't think is as probable. Maybe is the right word. Maybe it's not. I don't know. As Pat Narduzzi, Narduzzi has stronger ties to Michigan State. But who do you feel more confident in going forward? Honestly, if I have my choice, just a generic team, and I have my choice of who I want to be the next head coach of my college football team, I'm probably going to pick Luke Fickle before I pick Pat Narduzzi. For one thing, Fickle's an offensive guy. Narduzzi is a defensive guy. Offense is trending right now. Fickle is younger, and I know things didn't go well at Ohio State in his one year. I'd like to give him a second chance. I really would. I really would. He seems like he's part of the younger, more innovative generation. I would like to see Luke Fickle get his shots somewhere. Maybe not Michigan State. Maybe Michigan State fans don't want him. But either way, those two are the top two names on my list right now if I'm in the Michigan State Athletic Department. With that, let's move on to Northern Michigan Tuesdays. I've got some audio for you, hockey and basketball. Let's start with hockey, though. Grant Petoni sat down with us, his team coming off a sweep over Ferris State. Got to try out the new equipment. And Coach recapped the weekend for us on the ice. A lot to be pleased with, um, especially Saturday. You know, I, I thought the special teams were better. Um, areas that we were loose on Friday, we cleaned up for the most part on Saturday. And, you know, I did... I think we talked a little bit Friday night. Didn't feel like a 5-2 win. Um, Saturday did. You know, I felt like we were in control of that game from uh, start to finish. So it was, it, was, it was a good effort. Darian Craighead was honored by the WCHA as their player of the week. Coach talked about his string of play. Part of it is the production that he's given us, and, and that obviously is um, what people see. But it's when you look at teams in college hockey that do well in the end, seniors carry them. And because of our lack of seniors, we only have three of them, um, we need them all to play well, and um, you know he's he's kind of started to drive that line, and all of a sudden now he's pulling Luke with them, and now Luke's got three goals in his last four games, and um, you know he's setting career highs. So um, those guys have been really important. Coach was asked about Nolan Kent. Is he carrying himself a little bit differently, more confident now that he's solidified himself as the number one? I, I think even going back before Christmas, when we when he beat Mankato. You know, like I keep referencing that game, but there's a lot of things that that happened that game that carried on to the second half. And uh, his play in Bowling Green was outstanding. Um, Cornell, he was great. You know, if you look back at those games, there's one game that he played that I didn't think he saw the puck very well, and it's a different rink. Alaska's different. Um, one because of the travel, it's dark in there. Um, the seats are kind of set back, so the angles are different. Um, that's the only time I felt like he's not seen the puck and not played well. 
So now Mankato this weekend, a road trip to Mankato, Minnesota. Boy, that's a tough place to go and play. Coach asked what it's going to take to get the job done this weekend. You got to win the special teams battle. You know, like that's that's an area where because it's just they're they're so good defensively. You know, you think about Mankato, and everybody thinks about how offensive they are, and, and for sure they they can score with the best of them, but. They don't give you anything, you know. Like you're, you don't get any freebies. Um, you know, you think about ways that you score goals, and it's power play. It's you know, even what they just went through the four game stretch that they, the goals they gave up, they were power plays or they were shots from the point the goalie couldn't see or deflections. So, um, you know, special teams got to be good, and then we got to win the half court game. You know, like. And whatever happens in the neutral zone to me can can um, be an area that can kind of lull some people to sleep. But we have to win our end, and we have to win their end. And um, you know that that to me is based on the fact that their forwards are so good and so deep that if you can't stop them in your end and you can't spend some time in their end, um, it's going to be like the Friday night game we had here, where we just. I mean, had to defend and had to defend and had to defend. And, and then the moment you actually get the puck, you're tired, and all you can do is, you know, dump it and change. So um, we got to stop the puck, and then we got to have sustained time in their end that we've been really good at lately. We've done a good job um, because we're, we're scoring, you know, we've averaged four goals a game since we played Mankato, and our power plays at 12%. So we're doing it five on five, and we're doing it in the end zones. Um, and that's, you know, this weekend that's going to be just as important. Coach was asked about the team's mindset because this is a group that knows they can play with Mankato. They know they can go on the road and play with the top-ranked team in the country as they did in Cornell. I talked a little bit about the mindset um, that we had even after Cornell. You, you tied the game on Friday and um, on the road to tie against the number one team. Usually you leave the rink feeling okay about it. Our guys felt disappointed, and that's a good sign. Now, you have to do all the things required to be in that position, but um, the mindset's where it starts. You heard Coach mention earlier special teams looked better. What specifically about special teams looked better this weekend, Coach was asked? We weren't so static on the power play. Um, we... When, when you when you have a power play and, and you tell people where to stand, and, and you kind of... It's the only time that I really even... Coaches, really, with the exception of maybe a set breakout, offensively, where you tell guys what to do with the puck. So you get people in their spots and whatever formation you want to put them in. Um, and the danger is you want to make every play perfect. So I have the perfect look at the net or the perfect backdoor play, and it's not perfect. It's not black and white. Uh, we played hockey. You know, we've just found two on ones on the rink, and you know that at the end of the day, that's what power play is. You're setting people up to try create a two on one. Um, but if you can do it on your own and move, it's that's organically is the best way. Um, and the penalty kill was um, was was much better, uh, much sharper. Our our forwards were crisper on the dot lanes. Um, you know, we weren't getting seen, we weren't getting stretched out. Uh, you know, and, and we got a, we got some work to do there because that's at seventy two percent since that game. So um, you know, those numbers need to improve, and, and we've talked about them, talked about them, talked about them. I just I didn't think they'd they looked any different any of the games until Saturday. And I thought it was um, it was a big difference for us. Coach was asked about the locker room. How's that feeling going into the back end of the season? Confidence is high. Um, you know, and, and the other thing that I, I think is important to note is for whatever reason, the first couple of years, we haven't had a chance to play a team 
above us in the standings the back half of the year. So we, we've always played, you know, people below us. And, you know, last year, for the end of the ski, we played um, Tech and, um, and Lake State, and they were ahead of us going into those weekends. But they weren't, it wasn't a point where wins against these teams can really drastically change a lot of the national outlook, um, a lot of the outlook in the league. So we have a great opportunity. And, you know, we've always kind of been hoping and wishing, and boy, it'd be nice to, you know, we're playing good. It'd be nice to play, you know, play somebody like whoever. Um, well, here's our chance. And, you know, we got to make do with it. That's Northern Michigan hockey head coach Grant Petoni, his team getting sent to travel to take on Minnesota State of Mankato this weekend. Let's take our last time out. I got more audio for you in the basketball side next on ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. If you missed any of today's show, it's available on demand with the Sports Pen podcast. Get it from our free mobile app, which you can get from the Apple I Store, Google Play, or look up ESPNUP.com and check out the on demand there. There's even a link to our free mobile app in the Apple I Store Google Play from ESPNUP.com. How about that? Tell you what, we've got some more audio to get to here in the back half of our show. Let's switch to basketball. Women's head coach Troy Matson was unable to be with us earlier today, so his assistant coach Chloe Tompkins was there filling in for him and talked about the team split this weekend. Yeah, I mean, all in all, we're um, about as happy as we could be with the weekend. Um, obviously, we would have liked to get the sweep. Um, we were really looking to get the sweep for us, um, but with just how injured and sick we are right now, the girls played really hard. Um, Jessica Schultz had an incredible weekend, career high 26 on Thursday, 20 on Saturday. Um, as a senior, we need her, especially to really kind of put some of us, especially in the scoring end, on her back, and uh, she's delivered every single night for us, so that's huge. So we've been really happy the way she's been playing some of our underclassmen, Emily Miller, has been kind of stepping up for us, so that's been good. Um, obviously, we Aaron Honko went down Thursday, um, which is tough for us. Uh, she gives us a lot offensively and defensively, um, but as a whole, we're kind of moved on to this weekend and understand that we need to get a sweep. So, Oh, you heard Coach Tompkins talk about how the team's a little banged up. She gave us a health report. Well, Erin's got her MRI today to try to see how she's going to be doing. Um, McKaylee Kuhn, our freshman point guard, she has an MRI on Wednesday. Hopefully, we're keeping our fingers crossed that she'll be back for this weekend. Um, but obviously, the girls' safety is our number one priority, so we're not going to put anyone on the court if it's going to risk them getting more injured. So um, we're just kind of rolling with what we got um, and making the best out of it. The girls are playing really well defensively, which is what we hold our hat on. So if we can hold teams in the 40s like we did on Saturday, we just got to figure out a couple more places so we can score some more. Well, with the injuries, it's given the opportunity to other players to step up and take on some new roles, and coaches are very happy with how the team has done so. It's huge for the girls to not even really bat an eye. I mean, that was a huge player for us to go down on Thursday, and the girls kind of came together, especially in that Thursday night game. Um, Jess had a great night. Uh, she was really aggressive. She was spinning back to her left, which was huge for us uh, to have her getting left and right in the post. Um, we told her she's got to use all of our weapons that she's got. It's her senior year. Um, we're in the home stretch here, so she's our go-to player, definitely. But Emily Miller is definitely stepping up as well in the five position for us. Um, Liz Lutz has been huge also hitting some big shots around the arc for us, despite how injured she is as well. 
So now Parkside comes to town on Thursday, and Coach gave us a preview of that matchup. It will be a tough matchup. Um, we're, we're a tough matchup for each other. Um, they run a pretty difficult offensive set, but we are working on right now our defensive plan is our number one priority, um, how we're going to stop them. They have so much movement in their offense uh, that it can be a little bit difficult for our post to guard, but I think we've got a pretty good defensive plan coming along. Um, trying to figure out where we're going to score besides inside the post. That's the thing is when Jess is having such big nights for us, teams, that's going to be their scouting plan is how do we stop Jess inside. So we're going to have to have some more of our guards step up a little bit to take some of that load off of her. Saturday will be a rematch with Purdue Northwest inside the Barry Events Center, and Coach took a look ahead there. It's going to be a big game for us as well. Got a really strong, two really strong freshman guards, Brockington and Galbraith, um, who are really tough to defend. They've got some, um, a lot of scoring opportunities and different ways they score on the basket, but uh, our length really bothered them last time we played them, so we're hoping that our ability and our length along the guards and in the posts will give them some issues um, as well. And obviously we dominated them in the inside the first time we played them, so... We're going we're gonna to continue to try to dominate them inside, but also our guards got to be ready to make some plays, um, as I'm sure they're going to try to figure out how they can stop us. So. That's Chloe Tompkins, Northern Michigan assistant women's basketball coach. She filled in for Troy Matson at the weekly presser earlier today. On the men's side of things, it was a tough weekend. Coming off a huge high last week, the men dropped a pair of road conference games this weekend. Coach Matt Mackerzak sat down with us and addressed the media. It's kind of the highs and lows of sports. Um, we've had a few of them this year, but that was a pretty good example where you go 2-0 against two of the best teams in the league and then play two two teams that are still solid, middle-of-the-road teams on the road, and um, you go 0-2, which in some ways it's, it's almost it's not expected, but it's not, it's not earth-shattering. But when you have that high the previous week, you're like, we just need to find a way to kind of get one and continue that momentum, and it's frustrating not to be able to do that. Northern trailed early against Saginaw Valley State. They nearly pulled off an improbable comeback. Coach gave us his thoughts from that matchup. Honestly, I have two very different feelings about the games. I thought Saginaw, we uh, thought we were probably better, um, and I thought we came out not the way we needed to, and um, you know, a bunch of stuff happens. But I, I, that game was very frustrating to not win. Um, and at the same time, the second half of Saginaw was as well as we played all year. And I was I was amazed at how they were able to kind of dig down deep and find a way to fight all the way back against a really good team with a bunch of Division One transfers. And for us to be able to outplay them the way we did the second half was was probably as impressive as anything we've done all year. And it's frustrating it ended in a loss. Um, but there were a lot of positives to take away from, especially the second half that night. Well, as proud as Coach was with the Saginaw effort, he was not with the Northwood game, as he would go on to detail. Uh, that would be one, and I, you know, I, I, you never like saying this or doing this, but that would be one you chalk up to four games in a row on the road. Our five starters played all 20 minutes the second half of Saginaw. Um, we tried our best to get their legs back, you know, everything we could do, and within that 24-48 hour window we had. But I, I just didn't think we, we had it the second half. Um, the first half we played well. Um, again, we didn't have our normal energy, but I thought we played well. And in some ways, I think we lost the game in the first half only being up two because we very easily could have been up eight to ten points. And maybe then we could have just found a way to grind it out the second half. Um, but but I, I thought our legs were pretty shot. Um, Miles was in foul trouble. And, you know, if, if Miles is in foul trouble and we don't have our legs, 
and then we had two guys get hurt within the game on top of Troy. It just felt like one of those typical road games where you have all these things kind of stack up, and it's why even really good teams don't win them all. So um, that one was a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, but understandable maybe, how, how it kind of all transpired. Where the one on Thursday is a little more, gosh, if we would have just controlled the start, we would have probably walked out of there with a win. One of the highlights for the team this weekend, Sam Taylor reached 1,000 career points. Coach gave us his thoughts on that effort. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know it until after the game, and it definitely brightened up uh, the mood a little bit, just knowing he's he's one of those kids that if anyone deserves something like 1,000 points, is it's him. I mean, he was a four-year starter. Um, he's been completely selfless for all four years, uh, guarding the other team's best players, taking shots that, that – come in the, within the flow of the offense and deferring to a lot of other guys. Um, and then for him to do what he did his senior year, and in a lot of ways, um, him and, you know, it's it's true of all three of the seniors, but um, with him it kind of, for some reason, it smacks you in the face a little bit more. But he was a kid that probably wasn't supposed to be a D2 player. He had no offers until after his senior year. Um, then he not only becomes a D2 player, but he starts as a freshman on a, what at the time is a bad basketball team um, and a program that's, below average at, at that point in time and then he he basically is part of and a huge part of transforming it where his sophomore year they're they're relatively good their junior year they're really good and now going into his senior year he's supposed to be bad again and um you know so far we're, we've done a good job of hanging in there at seven and six and not being bad and um, I think a lot of that is the resiliency of those seniors who in a lot of ways have kind of defied the odds time and time again and Sam probably more so than the others is a is the shining example of that so for him to get a thousand points is cool but the way he did it is really the part that sticks out to me and just like the women the men will be hosting parkside on thursday coach previewed that matchup for us big game for us uh obviously standings wise it's a big game and then also um i know that that's still probably the most bitter taste we've had in our mouth all year um even including the ripping thing i would say parkside is a game that was the most frustrating to us as a group um it's the one game in conference we just we really weren't ready for, and we, we got, you know, pounced on pretty early um, against a team that I think is similar to us in a lot of ways. So I, I know our guys are excited for a chance to play them again, um, and, you know, we got to adjust a lot of the things we did the first time, and, and I, I'd like to think we're a different team now just in consistency, and it will be nice to have them at home rather than the second night of those road trips. It's it's definitely a much better uh, chance to play them the first night at home. So hopefully we're ready to go. Um, it's exciting that we finished with five of the seven at home. Um, I, I told our guys on Monday if going into the year, I would have said, hey, we're at seven and six. We're one game out of third, and five of our last seven games are at home. I think we've done a pretty good job of putting ourselves in a good position for the stretch. That's Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach Matt Mackerzak, his team getting set to close the regular season strong and get set for the tournament. And that's our show. Glad to have you along here in ESPN-UP. As always, again, we'll continue to follow and monitor what's going on with Mark D'Antonio and Michigan State. But again, the breaking news of the day that Mark D'Antonio abruptly resigned as Michigan State's head football coach just about two hours ago, about an hour before we got on the air after allegations of NCAA misconduct in regards to recruiting violations were brought up against him in Grand Rapids yesterday. We'll continue to follow that story. Plus, we got Westwood Patriot Boys basketball here at ESPN-UP this evening. It's my hope you join us for that. 7 o'clock pregame, approximately 7.15 tip. With that, 
Let's call it a day. I appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Signing off from downtown Marquette, Michigan, I'm Tanner Hoops for ESPN-UP WZM Ishpeming Marquette.